Chapter 10, Part 2 of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rob Powell. Moonfleet by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter 10, Part 2. The day was still young and far below us was stretched the moving floor of the channel, with a silver-gray film of night mists not yet lifted in the offing. A hummocky up-and-down line of cliffs, all projections, dents, bays, and hollows, trended southward till it ended in the great bluff of St. Albans Head, ten miles away. The cliff face was gleaming white, the sea tawny in shore, but purest blue outside, with the straight sun-path across it, spangled and gleaming like a mackerel's back. The relief of being once more on firm ground, and the exultation of an escape from immediate danger, removed my pain and made me forget that my leg was broken. So I lay for a moment basking in the sun, and the wind, which a few minutes before threatened to blow me from that narrow ledge, seemed now but the gentlest of breezes, fresh with the breath of the kindly sea. But this was only for a moment, for the anguish came back and grew apace, and I fell to thinking dismally of the plight we were in. How things had been against us in these last days. First, there was losing the why not, and that was bad enough. Second, there was the being known by the excise for smugglers, and perhaps for murderers. Third, and last, there was the breaking of my leg, which made escape so difficult. But most of all, there came before my eyes that gray face turned up against the morning sun, and I thought of all it meant for grace and would have given my own life to call back that of our worst enemy. Then Elzevir sat up, stretching himself like one waking out of a sleep, and said, We must be gone. They will not be back for some time yet, and when they come, will not think to search closely for us hereabouts. But that we cannot risk, and must get clear away. This leg of thine will keep us tied for weeks, and we must find some place where we can lie hid, and tend it. Now, I know such a hiding hole in Purbeck, which they call Joseph's Pit, and thither we must go, but it will take all the day to get there, for it is seven miles off, and I am older than I was, and thou too heavy a babe to carry over lightly. I did not know the pit he spoke of, but was glad to hear of some place, however far off, where I could lie still and get ease from the pain, and so he took me in his arms again and started off across the fields. I need not tell of that weary journey, and indeed could not if I wished. For the pain went to my head and filled me with such a drowsy anguish that I knew nothing except when some unlooked-for movement gave me a sharper twinge and made me cry out. At first Elzevir walked briskly, but as the day wore on went slower, and was fain more than once to put me down and rest, till at last he could only carry me a hundred yards at a time. It was afternoon, for the sun was past the meridian and very hot for the time of year, when the face of the country began to change, and instead of the short sward of the open down, sprinkled with tiny white snail shells, the ground was brashy with flat stones and divided up into tillage fields. It was a bleak, wide-bidden place enough, looking as if twould never pay for turning, and instead of hedges there were dreary walls built of dry stone without mortar. Behind one of these walls, broken down in places, but held together with straggling ivy, and buttressed here and there with a bramble bush, 
Elsevier put me down at length and said, I am beat and can carry thee no farther for this present, though there is not now much farther to go. We have passed Purbeck gates, and these walls will screen us from prying eyes, if any chance comer pass along the down. And as for the soldiers, they are not like to come this way so soon. And if they come, I cannot help it, for weariness and the sun's heat have made my feet like lead. A score of years ago I would have laughed at such a task, but now tis different, and I must take a little sleep and rest till the air is cooler. So sit thee here, and lean thy shoulder up against the wall, and thus thou canst look through this broken place, and watch both ways. Then, if thou see aught moving, wake me up. I wish I had a thimbleful of powder to make this whistle sound, and he took Maskew's silver-butted pistol again from his bosom, and handled it lovingly. "'Tis like my evil luck to carry firearms thirty years, and leave them at home at a pinch like this." With that, he flung himself down where there was a narrow shadow close against the bottom of the wall, and in a minute I knew from his heavy breathing that he was asleep. The wind had freshened much and was blowing strong from the west. And now that I was under the lee of the wall, I began to perceive that drowsiness creeping upon me which overtakes a man who has been tousled for an hour or two by the wind, and gets at length into the shelter. Moreover, though I was not tired by grievous toil like Elsevier, I had passed a night without sleep, and felt besides the weariness of pain to lull me to slumber. So it was, that before a quarter of an hour was passed, I had much to do to keep awake, for all I knew that I was left on guard. Then I sought something to fix my thoughts, and looking on that side of the wall where the sward was, fell to counting the molehills that were cast up in numbers thereabout. And when I had exhausted them, and reckoned up thirty little heaps of dry and powdery brown earth that lay at random on the green turf, I turned my eyes to the tillage field on the other side of the wall, and saw the inch-high blades of corn coming up between the stones. Then I fell to counting the blades, feeling glad to have discovered a reckoning that would not be exhausted at thirty but would go on for millions and millions and millions, and before I had reached ten in so heroic enumeration, was fast asleep. A sharp noise woke me with a start that set the pain tingling in my leg, and though I could see nothing, I knew that a shot had been fired very near us. I was for waking Elsevier, but he was already full awake, and put a finger on his lip to show I should not speak. Then he crept a few paces down the wall to where an ivy bush overtopped it, enough for him to look through the leaves without being seen. He dropped down again with a look of relief and said, "'Tis but a lad scaring rooks with a blunderbuss. We will not stir unless he makes this way. A minute later he said, "'The boy is coming straight for the wall. We shall have to show ourselves.' And while he spoke, there was a rattle of falling stones, where the boy was partly climbing and partly pulling down the dry wall, and so Elsevier stood up. The boy looked frightened and made as if he would run off. But Elsevier passed him the time of day in a civil voice, and he stopped and gave it back. "'What are you doing here, son?' Block asked. "'Scaring rooks for Farmer Top,' was the answer. "'Have you got a charge of powder to spare?' said Elsevier, showing his pistol. "'I want to get a rabbit in the gorse for supper, and have dropped my flask. Maybe you've seen a flask in walking through the furrows.' He whispered to me to lie still, so that it might not be perceived my leg was broken.' And the boy replied, No, I have seen no flask, but very like have not come the same way as you, being sent out here from Lower Moyne. 
and as for powder, I have little left, and must save that for the rooks, or shall get a beating for my pains. Come, said Elzevir, give me a charge or two, and there is half a crown for thee. And he took the coin out of his pocket and showed it. The boy's eyes twinkled, and so would mine at so valuable a piece, and he took out from his pocket a battered cowskin flask. Give flask and all, said Elzevir, and thou shalt have a crown, and he showed him the larger coin. No time was wasted in words. Elzevir had the flask in his pocket, and the boy was biting the crown. "'What shot have you?' said Elzevir. "'What? Have you dropped your shot flask too?' asked the boy. And his voice had something of surprise in it. "'Nay, but my shot are over small. If thou hast a slug or two, I would take them.' "'I have a dozen goose slugs, number two, said the boy. "'But thou must pay a shilling for them. My master says I never am to use them, except I see a swan or a buzzard.' or something fit to cook come over. I shall get a sound beating for my pains, and to be beat is worth a shilling. If thou art beat, be beat for something more, said Elzevir the tempter. Give me that firelock that thou carriest, and take a guinea. Nay, I know not, said the boy. There are queer tales afloat at Lower Moyne, how that a posse met the contraband this morning, and shots were fired, and a gauger got an overdose of lead, maybe of goose slugs number two. The smugglers got off clear, but they say the hue and cry is up already, and that a head price will be fixed of twenty pound. So if I sell you a fowling piece, maybe I shall do wrong, and have the government upon me as well as my master. The surprise in his voice was changed to suspicion, for while he spoke, I saw that his eye had fallen on my foot, though I tried to keep it in the shadow, and that he saw the boot clotted with blood, and the kerchief tied around my leg. "'Tis for that very reason,' says Elzevir, that I want the firelock. These smugglers are roaming loose, and a pistol is a poor thing to stop such wicked rascals on a lone hillside. Come, come, thou dost not want a piece to guard thee. They will not hurt a boy. He had the guinea between his finger and thumb, and the gleam of the gold was too strong to be withstood. So we gained a sorry matchlock, slugs, and powder, and the boy walked off over the furrow, whistling with his hand in his pocket, and a guinea and a crown piece in his hand. His whistle sounded innocent enough, yet I mistrusted him, having caught his eye while he was looking at my bloody foot, and so I said as much to Elzevir, who only laughed, saying the boy was simple and harmless. But from where I sat, I could peep out through the brambles in the open gap, and see without being seen, and there was my young gentleman walking carelessly enough, and whistling like any bird so long as Elzevir's head was above the wall. But when Elzevir sat down, the boy gave a careful look round, and seeing no one watching any more, dropped his whistling, and made off as fast as his heels would carry him. Then I knew that he had guessed who we were, and was off to warn the hue and cry. But before Elzevir was on his feet again, the boy was out of sight, over the hill-brow. "'Let us move on,' said Block. "'Tis but a little distance now to go, and the heat is past already. We must have slept three hours or more, for thou art but a sorry watchman, John. Tis when the sentry sleeps that the enemy laughs.' and for thee the posse might have had us both like daylight owls. With that, he took me on his back and made off with a lusty stride, keeping as much as possible under the brow of the hill and in the shelter of the walls. We had slept longer than we thought, for the sun was westering fast, and though the rest had refreshed me, my leg had grown stiff and hurt the more in dangling when we started again. Elsevier was still walking strongly, in spite of the heavy burden he carried, and in less than half an hour I knew, though I had never been there before, 
we were in the land of the old marble quarries at the back of Anvil Point. Although I knew little of these quarries, and certainly was an evil plight to take note of anything at that time, yet afterwards I learnt much about them. Out of such excavations comes that black Purbeck marble which you see in old churches in our country, and I am told in other parts of England as well. And the way of making a marble quarry is to sink a tunnel, slanting very steeply down into the earth, like a well turned askew, till you reach fifty, seventy, or perhaps one hundred feet deep. Then, from the bottom of this shaft, there spread out narrow passages or tunnels, mostly six feet high, but sometimes only three or four. And in these the marble is dug. These quarries were made by men centuries ago, some say by the Romans themselves. And though some are still worked in other parts of Purbeck, those at the back of Anvil Point have been disused beyond the memory of man. We had left the stony village fields, and the face of the country was covered once more with the closest sward, which was just putting on the brighter green of spring. This turf was not smooth, but hummocky, for under it lay heaps of worthless stone and marble drawn out of the quarries ages ago, which the green vestment had covered for the most part, though it left sometimes a little patch of broken rubble peering out at the top of the mound. There were many tumble-down walls and low gables left at the cottages of the old quarrymen. Grass-covered ridges marked out the little garden folds, and here and there still stood a forlorn gooseberry bush, or a stunted plum or apple tree, with its branches all swept eastward by the up-channel gales. As for the quarry shafts themselves, they too were covered round the tips with the green turf, and down them led a narrow flight of steep-cut steps, with a slide of soapstone at the side, on which the marble blocks were once hauled up by wooden winches. Down these steps no feet ever walked now, for not only were suffocating gases said to beset the bottom of these shafts, but men would have it that in the narrow passages below lurked evil spirits and demons. One who ought to know about such things told me that when St. Aldhelm first came to Purbeck, he bound the old pagan gods under a ban deep in these passages, but that the worst of all the crew was a certain demon called the Mandrive, who walked over the best of the black marble. And that was why such marble might only be used in churches or for graves. For if it were not for this holy purpose, the Mandrive would have power to strangle the man that hewed it. It was by the side of one of these old shafts that Elzevir laid me down at last. The light was very low, showing all the little unevenness of the turf, and the sward crept over the edges of the hole, and every crack and crevice in steps and slide was green with ferns. The green ferns shrouded the walls of the hole, and ruddy brown brambles overgrew the steps, till all was lost in the gloom that hung at the bottom of the pit. Elzevir drew a deep breath or two of the cool evening air, like a man who has come through a difficult trial. There, he said, this is Joseph's pit, and here we must lie hid until thy foot is sound again. Once get to the bottom safe, and we can laugh at Posse, and hue and cry, and at the king's crown itself. They cannot search all the quarries, and are not like to search any of them, for they are cowards at the best, and hang much on tales of the man-drive. Aye, and such tales are true enough, for there lurk gases at the bottom of most of the shafts, like devils to strangle any that go down. And if they do come down this Joseph's pit, we still have nineteen chances in a score they cannot thread the workings. But last, if they come down and thread the path, there is his pistol and a rusty matchlock, and before they come to where we lie, we can hold the troop at bay and sell our lives so dear they will not care to buy them. We waited a few minutes, and then he took me in his arms and began to descend the steps, 
back first as one goes down a hatchway. The sun was setting in a heavy bank of clouds just as we began to go down, and I could not help remembering how I had seen it set over peaceful Moonfleet only 24 hours ago, and how far off we were now, and how long it was likely to be before I saw that dear village and Grace again. The stairs were still sharp-cut and little-worn, but Elsevier paid great care to his feet, lest he should slip on the ferns and mosses with which they were overgrown. When we reached the brambles, he met them with his back, and though I heard the thorns tearing his coat, he shoved them aside with his broad shoulders, and screened my dangling leg from getting caught. Thus, he came safe without stumble to the bottom of the pit. When we got there, all was dark, but he stepped off into a narrow opening on the right hand, and walked on as if he knew the way. I could see nothing, but perceived that we were passing through endless galleries cut in the solid rock, high enough for the most part to allow of walking upright, but sometimes so low as to force him to bend down and carry me in a very constrained attitude. Only twice did he set me down at a turning while he took out his tinder box and lit a match. But at length the darkness became less dark, and I saw that we were in a large cave or room into which the light came through some opening at the far end. At the same time, I felt a colder breath and fresh salt smell in the air that told me we were very near the sea. End of chapter 10, part 2